I'll be reading from Exodus 17, the whole chapter. Exodus 17. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Raphim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with, with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Oreb. And you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. Then Moses said to Joseph, Choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Moses did. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses took, but Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joseph overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under the heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Praise be the Lord for his word. Amen. Thank you, Larry. At uh, the beginning of his public ministry, immediately after he was baptized, Jesus went into the desert wilderness. He fasted for 40 days, and at the crisis of his deepest hunger, Satan approached Jesus and tested him. As Luke recounts the events, Jesus overcomes each temptation by quoting Scripture to the accusing devil. The third and final rebuttal in Luke 4.12 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. These powerful words filled with meaning put an end to Satan's accusations for a time. 
Jesus Christ, our Savior, used the Old Testament Scripture in verbal contest with the devil. You shall not put the Lord God to the test. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16, where we find the rest of the commandment. You shall not put the Lord God to the, your, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Jesus was referencing the exact event we are studying this morning. So, what is so important about this event in the Sinai Desert? What were the people of God doing? What was God doing? And what should we learn from it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a light to our path. We're gathering your presence for a sacred time of worship and studying your word. We ask you to open our understanding of the message of this text. Help me to speak rightly and grant to us to hear the truth this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus who bore our sin as he hung on the cross to save our souls. And everyone said, Amen. So, what is so important about this event in the Sinai Desert? What were the people of God doing? What was God doing? And what should we learn from it? We are several weeks, months even, into our study of the history of God's sovereign plan of redemption through calling out and preserving the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have studied a series of miracles as God makes the Hebrew people into a great nation and brings them out of slavery in Egypt into the Sinai wilderness. Back a few chapters, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, we learn that God determined not to take the Hebrews directly to the promised land to face battle with the Canaanites immediately. God is preparing them teaching and training them to trust and obey Him alone. Now, in Exodus chapter 17, we come to a third in a series of events where the Hebrews complain to God about their needs. The first, bitter water that God made sweet for them. The second, we studied last week, where... The Hebrews were hungry, and God provided manna for them to eat. This third incident, again, involves water, but it takes a critical turn. Now they are not only complaining, but they actually accuse God. They accuse God of evil. Let's take a look. Exodus uh, chapter 17 and verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. I brought my water. Does that make you thirsty watching me drink this water? God commanded them to move on from the wilderness of sin. Justin briefly mentioned it's a kind of a coincidence that the name says sin, but it's hard to miss the irony that they were moving from a place of sin 
Where was God bringing them? Well, let's find out. The place where the miracle of manna began was in that place. We will find that God continued to provide manna as they remained in the Sinai Desert, wherever they went. But God's provision of food followed them, and they camped here at a place where there was no water. The manna followed, but the water did not. Water is essential to sustain life. We drink it, we cook with it, we wash with it. Survival experts say that most people would not last more than three days without water. I'm not sure I could last more than three hours without it. Why camp where there is no water? The demand for water would be immense with so great a multitude. The need would be almost immediately overwhelming. Yet God commanded them to camp at a place with no water. Verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? They quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Isn't it interesting that they came to Moses? I imagine they're... Children or the people in the camp of Israel, there were parents and children. The complaint might have begun with a child saying, Daddy, I'm thirsty. Mommy, I'm thirsty. You know, when my, uh, when my children say, Daddy, I'm thirsty, what do I say? Nice to meet you, thirsty. I'm dad. <laughs> or I'll say something uh, corny like, well, that's interesting. Maybe you should ask for some water. You know, I try to get them to say, may I have some water, please, that sort of thing. Every parent knows this kind of complaining demand. If you're in charge of caring for someone, suddenly all their problems are your problems, right? If a stranger says, I'm thirsty, you can offer help or not, but it's not your fault that they're thirsty, right? But if your child says, I'm thirsty, now suddenly it is your fault, Or at least the child thinks it's your fault. And now a multitude of people are thirsty and they think it's Moses' fault. And Moses says that God told him where to camp. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's what they were doing to Moses. They said, we have no water. Give us water. They're grumbling. They're miserable And they're holding him accountable, and Moses is surrounded by a multitude of hungry, angry people. Hungry, thirsty, angry people. Here, this grumbling takes a very serious turn. Moses says they are testing the Lord. Moses recognizes this for what it is. They are testing God. Let's look at verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They were thirsty, and they were grumbling. And their question of why is packed with intent. 
You brought us here to harm us and kill us. When does a need become a complaint? When does a complaint become a grumble? When does a grumble become an accusation? When does accusation become condemnation? Here's what's wrong with their question. First, they rejected God's blessings. (laughs) Remember why they were out there in the desert in the first place. They were freed from Egypt. Freed from slavery, that's a good thing. God had given great and wonderful gifts. Miracles that brought them out of slavery. He defeated the Egyptian army that had come after them. He defeated Pharaoh and all the false gods of Egypt. He preserved them as a people. They say all this was only to get them to this place and die of thirst. And their children and their livestock and all their possessions. Wait a minute. Where did all that livestock come from? Where did all those possessions come from? Who gave them to to them? God did. A few generations before their forefathers, the sons of Jacob, had come to Egypt hungry. They were in their, in, they were, their very lives were in peril of famine. And now they had grown into a great multitude and left Egypt with much more than they came with. They're accusing God of taking away what God gave them. Does that sound familiar? Don't we do the same thing? Don't the things sometimes that God blesses us with give us the great, the greatest worry and cause us to doubt God? The child you pray for, the child we pray for, who won't turn his heart to God? The husband that we long for, who won't pray, at home, the job that we need that's unfulfilling, inadequate to pay the bills. Do we forget God's blessings? <clears throat> Second, they rejected God's methods. God had chosen Moses with all his inadequacies to lead them and lead them through the wilderness instead of the direct route. They reject God's chosen leader and they rejected God's chosen way. Don't we sometimes do the same thing? They forgot how God provides. They forgot the manna. They forgot the 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees at Elim. They forgot the miracle of sweet water at Marah. And they don't ask why God brought them from their last campsite. You might recall, if you have your Bible still open, look back a couple of chapters when he made the water sweet. They stayed at a place with 12 springs of water. 
plenty of water there. Why didn't they just long to go back to the first campsite? But no, they were complaining about going all the way back to Egypt. In their minds, they wanted to go back before God came onto the scene. They also, they despise the, they despise being dependent on God. They despise being dependent on God and prefer, they prefer even yearn to return to the dependency on the evil Egyptians. Uh, next, they reject God's sovereignty while also condemning, now catch this, they also condemned how he uses his sovereignty. In other words, they say God's too weak to sustain us and he's not doing it right either. (laughs) They reject God's sovereignty while also rejecting how he uses his sovereignty. This is at the center of original sin. Remember how Satan tempted Eve? Will you surely die? You can't eat any of this food in the garden? That doesn't sound like a very good plan. Why would God do that? That's not really what happened. That's not going to happen to you. This is at the center of original sin. Satan accuses God in the same way. Now, recall again at the temptation when he was tempting Jesus. He brings Jesus to a high place. And he says, if you are God, then jump off this high place and prove it to everyone. If you are God, then act like it. (laughs) That's what Satan says. If you're God, then act like it. The grumbling Hebrews are doing the same thing here. If you really are God, then why are we thirsty? They shake their fists at God and say, you're doing it all wrong. This is your fault. Grace Church, if God is God enough to rescue them from Egypt, then he is God enough to do it His way. Amen? If He is God enough to rescue them from Egypt, He is God enough to do it His way. God's people, God's rules. God's world, God's rules. God's universe, God's rules. God's creation, God's rules. Verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. (laughs) Moses is saying, help, I'm in trouble, what should I do? Now, Moses is also questioning God, but his question is a little bit different. And I think there's some something we can glean from his example. He is afraid, afraid of death. He is not perfect. He is also behaving in a panic, but he is his different. He, he's, these are the differences in uh, Moses' fear. First, he's not afraid of thirst. He's not afraid of thirst. He's afraid of the people. <laughs> and second, Moses is truly asking for help from God. He's asking for protection, which demonstrates that he is dependent on God. Verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, 
taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. God's reply to Moses is a command to do something. It has detailed step-by-step instructions involving a declaration before witnesses and his staff. When when have we seen God give Moses instructions like this before? Well, it's when he commanded Moses to go before Pharaoh with a command with his staff. Pass before the people. Take some of the elders. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Now... Some look at this and see, beyond even the details, they see a picture. There's a setting that God is creating here. And it's like a a courtroom setting, like a trial setting, a a stage for judgment. There are witnesses, there are accusers. Moses and the elders are standing proxy, and the staff is similar to a gavel totally symbolic of authority and judgment and final decision. For acquittal, even today, we use a gavel in our courts for acquittal or condemnation. The gavel comes down to give authority to the the decision. The application of punishment also. Where is the accused, though, in this trial? Who's being accused? Who is on trial? Verse 6. Behold, this is God still talking to Moses. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. God says, if you're going to accuse me, okay, let's do this. I'll stand before you on that rock. You shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. God himself will stand accused. God's presence symbolically represented there. And you shall strike the rock, symbolic of judgment and punishment. When Moses struck the Nile, it turned to blood. The first plague, symbolic of God's judgment and punishment of Pharaoh and Egypt. Here we have God directing Moses to stage a trial in which God himself, innocent, yet submitting to the sham accusations. Innocent, yet submitting to the sham accusations. will stand accused and condemned and receive the blow of punishment. And when the staff struck the blow... Water gushed forth. And here I actually wished for an extra verse that would give details of exactly how and why and how much water came forth. You know, how fast it all came out, like, you know, all the science behind it. Just to try to explain, because, you know, I like those details. Uh, some would look at this and try to, you know, Imagine how a spring could be flowing just barely under the surface of the rock so that when Moses hit the perfect spot, it would crack open and water. Or he hit a perfect uh, fissure in the rock that would make it split way deep and cause 
springs to come up. No. It actually really was nothing, nothing at all like that. It was not a mere natural occurrence. This was a miraculous event. When Moses struck the rock with the, with the staff, water gushed forth enough for all of the vast multitude to drink and to cook and to wash. Imagine how much water that must have been. No, this wasn't something just barely under the surface. This was God bringing the water. Symbolic, yes, even of the water of life, the living water that he would one day bring when he himself was struck and punished in our place. This foreshadows the atoning crucifixion of Jesus. He was innocent, yet God placed our sin upon Jesus. He was innocent, yet he willingly stood trial. He accepted the sham condemnation and the punishment for our sin. And when Jesus received the penalty of death, his very life was poured out for us so that we could drink of living water and never be thirsty again, so that we could eat the bread of life and never be hungry again, so that we could be washed and cleansed of our sin and never perish but have everlasting life. Verse 7, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So this testing of God is an event long remembered. The place Massa means testing and Meribah means quarreling because they accused God here saying, is God with us or not? Friends, even today, we can hear about others going through times like this. Even now we know a dear family in our congregation who must be asking the same thing. Why is God putting us through this? Where is God in this? They remain faithful and trusting that God is still with them. And we too with them. We, we remain faithful as well. But we are asking that question. Let's turn here to verse 8. This is the passage. Both of these stories, actually. The one about the water coming from the rock. And this next one about the Israelites defeating Amalek. When Moses held his arms up. It's one of my favorites from Sunday school. From hearing those Sunday school stories. It was always fun to draw pictures of Moses. Or see a, you know, a flannel graph of Moses with his arms up. And... Aaron and her holding his arms up. But now we get to study it uh, as a congregation. Uh, In verse 8 we see uh, Amalek uh, came and began to fight with the people of Israel. So uh, here's a reason, you know, God had avoided having them go straight to Canaan and face the battles of the Canaanites. But in this case, God brought the battle to them out here in the desert. Amalek were descendants of, they were descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. And it seems that the whole battle was God's way of training and testing and growing the Hebrews. And, 
we see that Moses delegates Joshua to organize an army. And Moses declares that he will go up the hill with the staff of God. That's as he calls it now, the staff of God. Joshua and Moses, they all act according to this plan. And we don't see here that God told Moses what to do. But yet God blesses and God at least uh, provides protection as Moses does, does this. So we can only assume here that Moses has direction or uh, guidance from God to do this. The staff represents God's authority and judgment. And the army of Israel prevails when Moses held the staff up. Was this some kind of clever military tactic? Was Moses directing troops? If so, it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Moses was pointing or giving any directions. It just says he was holding his arms up. Maybe the Israelites were just inspired. This was inspiration for the Israelites, like a motivational thing that helped them stand and fight better. Maybe, but how would that affect Amalek? Amalek didn't know who Moses was or what that staff was. Why would it matter if Moses held up his hand or not? They were probably too far away from Moses to even see whether he was holding his hands up or not. Have you ever thought about that? I don't think this was any military tactic or strategy or any motivation. No, I think this was again God's miracle. Showing again and proving to them that this was not their fight. It's God's fight. This was God's fight. Remember, Moses was commanded by God to hold his arms the last time they faced an army. The Egyptian army. God told Moses to hold his hands over the Red Sea and divide it. And then again, hold your arms over the sea and return it to its original state and thus defeated the Egyptian army. And in that story, the Israelites had no weapons in their hands. Remember? Both times. This was God's fight. God defeated the army. But there is no doubt who is winning the battle. God is. Now, the last couple of verses refer to God telling Moses that he will utterly blot out the memory of the Amalekites. And Moses records that. doesn't look like Moses gets it quite right there. This is uh, something for, for later discussion, though. Uh, maybe something we can ask Moses. Hey, remember those Amalekites? Um, did God really defeat them or uh, utterly def- take their memory out of the, the history books? Because here we're reading it here. Maybe Moses will say, Malachites? What Malachites? We forgot. By the time we all got to heaven, we forgot. Okay, so a while ago I asked the question, when does a need become a request? And when does a request become a complaint? And a complaint, an accusation. And an accusation, a condemnation. Remember that? I believe the critical choice is made at the very beginning. When we first recognize the need. When I feel like I need water. It's not me. It's not my fight. It's God's fight. 
We ask God to supply our needs. The difference is, do we ask God to supply our needs because we trust God? Or do we ask God to supply our needs because we don't trust God? If we ask because we don't trust Him, that's an accusation that leads to sin. If we ask because we do trust Him, that is faith and dependence and obedience. Amen? God wants us to ask. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. We're commanded to ask. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything with much prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. James 1, 5, says if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who will give. We must not test the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is how Jesus rebukes Satan. Moses rebukes the Israelites for this. And we can actually turn to the middle of our Bibles to Psalm chapter 95. If you'd like to turn there with me, you could where, again, this same incident is brought up, and I think it gives us good guidance. Psalm 95. Psalm 95. So, if we're not supposed to ask, because if we're not supposed to ask doubting, if we're not supposed to ask and test and accuse the Lord of evil, what do we do if we truly in our hearts don't know? (laughs) We're weak in our hearts and we don't know what God's going to do. We don't know if it's going to turn out right. We don't know if it's going to turn out well for us. We have to admit, as as failed, weak, sinful human beings, we, we have to admit that sometimes we have that weakness. You know what God tells us to do? He says, ask. For you ask to ask God for the strength to believe. Ask God for the strength to believe. Psalm 95 verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Trust the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Many times we feel outside of God's presence. Many times we feel like we don't want to ask God for things. We feel like we don't want to know what God is doing because it hurts too bad. The terrible time we're going through is too difficult and too rough. Time and time again, the scripture teaches us to enter his presence with thanksgiving. Begin By saying thank you. Begin by thanking God for what you do know. For what you do have. Begin by thanking God for setting you free from sin. Begin by thanking God for giving you life. Begin by thanking God for giving you this child that now you're praying over. Begin by thanking God for giving you this marriage that you're praying over right now. And with that thanksgiving, we enter God's presence. And His strength comes. His grace comes and His mercy comes. He is all-powerful, verse 3 will tell us. Verse 4, Psalm 95, verse 4, In His hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are His also. He owns everything. 
He holds everything. And this includes us. Look at verse 7. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We can rest assured in his care. Verse 7 ends or concludes with, Today, if you hear his voice, verse 8, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and, on, and as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. Do not accuse God of evil. Only God can do what's right for you. Only God can do what's right for him. Only God can do what's right for us, for his plan, for the world. Only God. Trust in Him. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we read here about a people who had forgotten Your blessings. And Lord, we ask humbly, please, Lord, help us never to forget your blessings. We read about a people who had forgotten that you had a plan. Let us never forget that you have a plan. We have a people who thought that they were judging you, God, to do what they thought you should do. Oh, God. As tempting as that is, forgive us and keep us from from holding you to a weak standard of our own desires. Oh God, forgive us for that. Lord, we ask that you uh, that not our will, Lord, but your will be done. Lord, your will be done. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. We turn now to a time where we're going to be taking uh, the Lord's Supper. Guys can go ahead and come on forward. And uh, many churches, almost every Christian church in the world takes communion. Some every Sunday, some once a month like us, some occasionally, but Nevertheless, all around the world, they're taking this communion. This is a remembrance of what Jesus did for us. And so if you're visiting with us today, I want you to know that uh, you're welcome. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you trust him for salvation, then you're welcome to take this uh, communion uh, elements with us. If you're not, I'd love to talk with you afterwards if you have questions about that. Uh, Immediately following the service, if you want to see me or any of the others that you've seen up here. You're welcome to talk with him, but so we're going to be enjoying uh, the, uh, the the elements here. And the one thing that Jesus asked for us to do as we take these is do this is to take these as we remember him and what he did. So I'll read Isaiah chapter fifty three, which calls us to remember what Jesus did for us. This is verse five and ten. But he was pierced for our transgressions; he was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
when his soul makes an offering for our guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Amen.